let's move on to our text. If you have a Bible with you uh, or you have your phone, go to 2 Samuel chapter 18. We're going to start reading in verse 19 and we're going to end in verse 33. So that's 2 Samuel 18 and starting in verse 19, we're going to end in verse 33. Hear what the word of God says from from 2 Samuel. When he was alive, Absalom had taken a pillar and raised it up for himself in the king's valley, since he thought, I have no son to preserve the memory of my name. So he named the pillar after himself. It is still called Absalom's monument today. Ahimaaz, son of Zadok, said, Please, let me run and tell the king of good news that the Lord has vindicated him by freeing him from his enemies. Joab replied to him, You are not the man, to take good news today. You may do it another day, but today you aren't taking good news because the king's son is dead. Joab then said to a Cushite, go tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed to Joab and took off running. However, Ahimaaz, son of Zadok, persisted and said to Joab, no matter what, please let me also run behind the Cushite. Joab replied, my son, why do you want to run since you won't get a reward? No matter what, I want to run. Then run, Joab said to him. So Ahimaaz ran by way of the plain and outran the Cushite. David was sitting between the city gates when the watchman went up the roof of the city gate and over to the wall. The watchman looked out and saw a man running alone. He called out and told the king. The king said, if he is alone, he bears good news. As the first runner came closer, the watchman saw another man running. He called out to the gatekeeper, look, another man is running alone. The one, this one is also bringing good news, said the king. The watchman said, the way the first man looks to me like the way Ahimaaz, son of Zadok, runs. This is a good man. He comes with good news, the king commented. Ahimaaz called out to the king, all is well. I paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. He continued, Blessed be the Lord your God. He delivered up the men who rebelled against my Lord, the king. The king asked, Is the young man Absalom all right? Ahimaaz replied, When Joab sent the king's servant and your servant, I saw a big disturbance, but I don't know what it was. The king said, Move aside and stand here. So he stood to one side. Just then the Cushite came and said, May my Lord, the king, hear the good news. The Lord has vindicated you today by freeing you from all who rise against you. The king asked the Cushite, Is the young man Absalom all right? The Cushite replied, I wish that the enemies of my Lord, the king, along with all who rise up against you with evil intent, would become like that young man. The king was deeply moved and went to his chamber above the city gate and wept. As he walked away, he cried, My son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Absalom, my son, my son. Uh, But let us jump into this story that we just heard Matt read for us this morning. We're continuing in our series on the life of David. And here we are, we're, we're in... Really, what you can consider, you know, sort of the second part of David's life, 
throughout most of 1 Samuel and then into 2 Samuel, we see David's rise from a shepherd boy to a great warrior to eventually becoming king and his um, the pinnacle of his kingdom and his reign, defeating enemies, uniting all the tribes of Israel under one kingdom and so on. But then he has his fall and his sin with Bathsheba and then everything that comes after that. It really creates a dividing line in the story of David. And so we're continuing to look at the fallout, the consequences, uh, or as we said before, the downstream effects that we see in the kingdom and in the household of David because of his sin. A rebellion had been started by one of David's sons, a young man named Absalom. He started this rebellion against David, had actually caused David to have to flee his own throne, flee his own city, and go out into the wilderness. And now they go into battle against one another. Absalom is struck down. And today what we are looking at, as we pause for just, uh, just a moment, looking at this story of Absalom's fall, we're pausing to look at David's interaction with all the major characters. Today we're going to be looking at his interaction with Ahimaaz. Um, but here, here we look at that, and we look at David receiving the news today. What I want us, the reason I want us to pause as we come to this section here, Second uh, Samuel chapter eighteen, and next week, or not next week, because Doug's going to be here, but the week after that, we're going to look at uh, David and Joab in eighteen and the beginning of nineteen. I want us to pause and consider it carefully because we need to recognize that the Bible is not a Marvel movie. There's, you know, there's always like very clear good guys and bad guys in Marvel movies, and the good guys always decisively win. It's very black and white. But the reality of reading Scripture that we need to understand is that when we read these narratives, particularly in the Old Testament, they're not always super black and white. We read stories about the good guys doing some very bad things. We read stories where maybe it seems like the good guys win at the end, but it's still pretty confusing. Right here, it seems as though the good guys win, but David is mourning and lamenting over it. As I explained last week, it is true that, uh, that, that the truths of God and that, uh, that, uh, that morality set by God is black and white. But the black and white truths of God are worked out in a messy world where sometimes they bleed together into a gray. What that means is, and not on the one hand that we should say, well, it's just unknowable, or on the other hand, uh, resort to simplistic answers that don't work with any kind of nuance, what we need to do is think carefully. Come to these texts where it's hard to discern exactly what we should take away from it and be thoughtful about them so that we can increase the contrast of this gray image to where it comes out to a discernible picture that we might draw wisdom from. That's our project and why we're slowing down to look at David's interaction with all the main characters in this story, today looking at Ahimaaz. We're going to look at two things. We're going to look at David's desire and then Ahimaaz's service. Let's begin with David's desire. Like I said before, uh, his, son, <coughs> his son Absalom had started this rebellion. He had taken the allegiance of, uh, of, of Israel, which you need to understand in this section of the narrative of Scripture when it refers to Israel, it's basically referring to all the tribes and region of Israel that, it would, that would be to the north of Jerusalem 
And when it refers to Judah, that would be the southern part of the kingdom, okay? The geography of Israel kind of changes over time. You know, we call those same areas by different names in the New Testament. For this section of Scripture, that's what it's referring to. So pretty much, uh, you, you could say like two-thirds or a, a big majority of what was the nation of Israel, but was just called here Israel, went with uh, Absalom, while only Judah, which would be the tribe that uh, David was from, the tribe in the area that was always behind David, only stayed with him. And so his personal army, his elite soldiers, went on the run. They're hiding out. They had taken refuge in a city in Judah, uh, in, a, in an area that was still loyal to him. But Absalom has now amassed this great, massive army to go to war to take out David. You can go back and look at this from a couple weeks ago when we looked at that in 2 Samuel chapter 17. Uh, they were going to go after him as soon as he fled the city, but instead decided to wait to build a much larger army that Absalom himself would lead to go out and capture David. So the army of Israel, led by Absalom, goes out to war with David and his men. But the thing is that David's men, he actually stays back in the city that they took refuge in. He doesn't go out to battle because they tell him, if you go out with us, they're not going to care about killing any of us. They're just going to go for you. It's not militarily wise. It's not good military strategy for you to go. Just stay behind. So he stays behind. They'll go out to war, and of course, they destroy them. Because David had, you know, he, he had like the Navy SEALs of, of their army with him. The, the, the other army stood no chance. So they go out to war with them. They destroyed them. Absalom tries to flee. He goes into the forest, which was very thick with brush and trees. It had great pits in the forest that is said that many men were falling down to and into. Absalom is caught up in the tree. Now, let's pause here. Remember. It's not in what we read today, but if you go back and read the whole chapter, you'll see this. Before David sent Joab um, and his other generals and his army out into battle, he told them to deal gently with Absalom for my sake. His desire was that they would defeat the army, but if possible, they would deal gently with Absalom, his son. Though he desired to put an end to the rebellion, he was not really committed to what putting an end to the rebellion would entail? Will it be necessary for it? He says, deal gently with my son Absalom. But then they find him caught in the tree. Joab goes and finds him, and he executes him. He puts him to a very shameful death. They bury him in a pit covered with stones. You can go back and catch up from the sermon last week to remind yourself of all that that meant. Joab takes matters into his own hands. Joab's a realist. He's somewhat of an enigma. We're going to look at him next uh, in a couple weeks. He takes matters into his own hands to put Absalom to death. He knows what needs to be done, even though it was against David's wishes. And here's where we see our first point that I want us to consider today, which is that occasionally God's will is different from what we desire. Occasionally God's will is different from what we desire. It would be good for us to remind ourselves that it was not just Joab taking matters into his own hands, but in fact Joab was being a servant of God whenever he put Absalom to death. Because back in chapter 17, as it was telling us the story of, uh, of Absalom and his advisors deciding what they're going to do about pursuing David, the decision that Absalom eventually made, the narrator pauses in the middle of his telling of the story to say, you know, now, now things went this, I'm paraphrasing, this is the Aaron Champ version. 
the ASV. Uh, in the ASV, it says, <laughs> yeah. Now, things went this way because the Lord had ordained Absalom's destruction. God had decreed, he had ordained, it was his will that Absalom would be destroyed, that he would, have, he would eventually meet his downfall, his day of justice for his rebellion, not just against his father, David, but his rebellion, more importantly, against the office that David held, which was being the Lord's anointed. His rebellion, not just against David, but against God. And for his rebellion against God, he deserved justice. God had ordained that back in chapter 17. So God had ordained Absalom's destruction, but David desired gentleness. You see, this is where we read Scripture, and sometimes it's hard to wrap our mind around, what are we supposed to take away from this? Right? This is where the grayness comes in that we need to think carefully about. So we have God's will, but we have what David desires. Whose will should carry the day? Yahweh's will or David's sentimentality? You see, David's desire did not match up with God's desire here in Scripture. But because God is sovereign, because it is his will, ultimately, that will carry the day, even against David's, what he ordained comes to pass. When we look at our own life, we, we need to recognize that there may be often times, even for Christians, even for wise Christians, even for righteous Christians who, uh, who regularly obey God and walk with him, there may be often times whenever our desires, our preferences go against God's will. They're not in line. The way that we would like to see things go in our life, the way that we like to see things go in our, in our careers, maybe in our relationships, the way that we'd like to see our children's lives go, sometimes they don't go according to the way that we desire or what was necessarily our preference, but ultimately they go according to what God desires because he remains sovereign even whenever our desires or preferences don't align with his. And so whenever we're walking through life and we go through times where maybe we're disappointed or maybe we're, we're approaching a decision and we recognize because of the Spirit's conviction that we're pursuing something, we're pursuing an outcome or a goal that doesn't line up with what God desired. In that moment, what do we do? What do we do when we recognize that? Whether it be in the aftermath of an outcome or before, what do we do? Obedience requires that we align our desires with God's and submit to his will. This is what is required. Far from easy. Much easier to talk about than to live out. I'll confess in my own life, it's far easier for me to preach on it than to live it out. There's been times whenever my preferences and my desires and maybe even something that I have prayed for went against what was God's desire as he showed in the outcome. So what am I to do? Am I to rebel against him? Am I to be angry and shake my fist? Here's the thing. It's okay to express my frustration, but then I have to submit. The same thing is true in your life. If we're all those who are going to walk with the Lord, who are going to be disciples to Jesus and give their allegiance to him as their king. Whenever our will does not align with God's, as we see with David here in 
2 Samuel 17 and 18, we have to work, though it may be difficult at times, to align our will with his, with his, to entrust outcomes, to entrust our lives, to entrust the lives of those that we love over to his sovereignty and his care and his plan, and then submit to him in how we walk forward from there. Our application, submit to God. Submit to God. We see how Ahimaaz proposed his service here. Whenever you read this chapter as a whole, or really this whole story um, as an entirety, you can tell or get the sense that Ahimaaz was this guy who just caught up in the thrill of what had just happened. Imagine, put yourself in the shoes of someone who, was, um, who still had allegiance to David throughout this situation. The anxiety of the king having to flee, going along with him, now having this rebel uh, king on the throne, this coup that had just been accomplished. You go through all that anxiety. You take part in the resistance to that coup. And now you have victory at the end of the day. Ahimaaz got to witness and be a part of all this to a certain extent. He was there in the battle. We know because he was right there with Job uh, whenever the battle was finally won and Absalom was destroyed. If you go back, you see that he got to be a part of the espionage work too. If you go back and read, David had set up a, a spy network, essentially, that would remain in Jerusalem to be able to relay information back and forth to him as he was on the run in the wilderness. Ahimaaz got to be a part of that. He was a part of the battle. Now they win, and he's caught up in the excitement of it all. And so whenever it comes time for who is going to bring the good news to David, he's jumping and waving his hand. You know, he's like, I'm the guy that wants, I want to go. Send me. I want to be the guy to bring the good news. You get that sense. That's what Ahimaaz was experiencing here. We can identify with that. But Joab... He's a smart, smart man. He's a realist, like I said before. And he says, this job isn't for you, buddy. He says, you're not going to be the one to bring the good news today. And what's his logic? It's, it's, like, it's very good <laughs> and clear. He says, he says, you're not the guy to bring this because it's ultimately not going to be good news to David. You know, Joab recognizes that he went against David's orders. He was insubordinate to David whenever he... Whenever he had Absalom executed. And so he knew that though it was a message of victory, it would not be good news to David. And so he says, you're not the guy, buddy. This job isn't for you. Let's, let's send the, the Kushite. You know, this guy that we don't even have a name for, this guy who's not even an Israelite. He said, you know, let's send him. He's going to tell David. And so ultimately he sends him, but Ahimaaz just, he can't give up. Even though he heard Joab's reasoning, he can't give up. He says, no, I'm, I want to do it. I can do it. I can bring the news to him. And so finally he says, okay, go ahead and go. He runs and he takes an alternate route to where he actually uh, ends up beating the Cushite who had had a head start on him. He was a good runner and he took an alternate route. And sure enough, just like Joab said, whenever David's lookout is watching and he sees this guy running, he says, he says you know, that looks like Ahimaaz, son of Zadok. What does David say? He says, that's a good man. He's coming with good news. Joab knew. Joab knew. But yet, Ahimaaz had still offered his service. 
He wanted to be a part of this. This was a significant moment in history. This was a great calling that he saw that he wants to be a part of and give his service. So he goes, even still, and he runs up to David out of breath, and he tells him, victory is yours. We have won the day. And he says, and what about my son? What did I must say? Then he says, oh, it's like, I, there's a lot of commotion, and I'm not, uh, I'm not so sure about that, right? He was so excited to volunteer. He says, I'm your guy. Send me. I can do it. He heard Joab's reasoning. He goes, and then he doesn't fulfill the task. He's excited to bring the good news, but the hard part that came with that job He wasn't willing to do. Then the Cushite comes, and he tells David the whole story that Ahimaaz was not willing to do. This guy that we don't even have a name for, he's the one who tells David not what he wanted to hear, but what he needed to hear. Here's our second point. Don't be a half-hearted servant in the kingdom. Don't be a half-hearted servant in the kingdom. Let's just consider this again, what happened. First, Ahimaaz demanded a job that wasn't for him to begin with. He demanded a job that was not for him. Joab was right. He was proven right. Not, he was proven right twofold. First, it, it got David's hopes up, thinking that, this, that Ahimaaz coming was a sign of good news. For David, good news being that Absalom had not been struck down in the battle. Joab was right. Then on top of that, Ahimaaz wasn't up to the task. Joab was right. But Ahimaaz demanded it. You know, he saw it like, this is the job that I want. This is the calling that I want. This is for me. You know, forget the the jobs that I was given. Forget what the, the role that I was called to play a part in, that I got to do. You know, that's what I want. It's that ministry opportunity that I want for myself. That's what I want to do. He demanded a job that wasn't for him to begin with. Similarly, we demand jobs that we want in the kingdom. Sometimes we're not satisfied with the calling that God has given us. Sometimes we're not satisfied with with the roles in ministry that have been given to us. We see other ministry jobs. We see other ministry roles or opportunities in the kingdom that someone else has And it looks better to us. It looks like it comes with a little bit more glory. It looks like maybe it's a little bit more exciting or a little bit more fun. It comes with a little bit more recognition. And we demand those jobs. We demand them whether it be of God. Our will's not aligned with his. We're not listening to him and what he wants. And so we say, you know, that's what I want to do. And we try to pursue it even if God's not calling us to it. We pursue them even against the wise counsel of Christian leaders and of Christian community who might say, you know, you know, that, like, that's good. I'm glad you want to do that, but, but this is really what you're gifted in. This is really what you need to do. Or look, I'm glad you want to do that, but here's where we have a need, right? You know, there's a lot of people who want to be up here, but not as many who want to be in the kids' area. Like Matt told you guys, we have a need. So many of us often do this as well. We push for the jobs that we want, and then whenever it comes to the ones that, that are really needed or maybe that God's actually calling us to are those that 
that love us and want to see good for us too are telling us, look, here's where you're really needed. Then we say, ah. In other words, we often have conditions on how we want to serve or where we serve. Instead of just approaching God and, and approaching his kingdom with an attitude of yes. One of the best pieces of advice I ever got was back whenever I was in uh, Bible college, and I was in an interview, um, a part of an interview process for a scholarship I was trying to get, and um, the man, Dr. Tolbert, that I was talking to, he was asking me about what I saw for my future in ministry and, and so on, and he said, you know, you just need to say yes before you even know what it is. And, I took, and I've taken that away and, and always tried to live with it ever since. Just have an attitude of yes. Yes, Lord, whatever and wherever you want. Before it even becomes clear what the wherever and whatever is, the answer is yes. But let's be real. We, once again, it's a thing that's easy for us to say, but so often we don't live it out. We have conditions. We have preferences. We have our own plans and so on. Just like Ahimaaz. So first, he demands a job that wasn't for him to begin with. Then secondly, he doesn't completely fulfill the duties of that job. He's excited, like I said before. He, he's caught up in, you know, the enthusiasm of this victory. And so he wants to continue on that excitement and that energy. And so he goes and he brings the good news to David. But here's the thing. With that job that he wanted, with that calling that he wanted for himself, there came the blessing and the fulfillment of bringing the news of victory, but there also came a cost with it, which was having to tell the king you love the worst thing he wanted to hear. Ahimaaz wanted the excitement and the fulfilling, fulfillment of that calling, but not the cost. Sometimes we put conditions in how we want to serve, but there's other times where we neglect to completely fulfill the duties of what God has called us to do because it's difficult. We're enthusiastic to answer the calls whenever we consider how exciting it might be to answer the call that God has put on us or that we're invited into from church or, or the ministries that we're a part of. But then whenever the cost of answering that call comes along at some point and it gets difficult, it's not as exciting anymore. Are there some setbacks? You encounter some obstacles. Then we start to drop the ball. Then we start to neglect completely fulfilling the duties of all that we are called to in that job, in that role. In other words, we're excited to participate in the victory, but not in the delivery of bad news. This applies to all of the callings that God has on us in our life. You know, it's not just those ministry callings, but it's your calling in your marriages. <coughs> For those of you who are, who are married. We're excited to fulfill our calling as a husband or as a wife. <coughs> Excuse me. Whenever it's fun. <coughs> Whenever it's easy. <coughs> Sorry. I got a <coughs> tickle in my throat. Um, but then when it comes time for forgiveness, <coughs> when it comes time for long-suffering, <coughs> I have a, Eli, I have a drink on the back table. 
<coughs> Sorry. <clears throat> they were not as eager to fulfill the, that calling of being a spouse. <clears throat> being a parent is super fun. Whenever your kids are cute and they're being obedient. <coughs> Mm, I'm so sorry. <clears throat> but whenever they need discipline, right? Whenever they need patience, then it's not as fun. And, it, and we're tempted to start to neglect all that it means and all that it requires of us to be good parents. We're excited to be a part of a cause for the kingdom and the, the vision that comes behind it. But then whenever there's setbacks, we go through lulls, or it doesn't turn out to be everything that we thought it would be. Then we're tempted to pull out. We're tempted to start saying, oh, well, maybe, maybe this wasn't right for me. Maybe I'm supposed to be doing something else. Or to, or to just start coasting along. We're excited to join a cause. We're excited to join a ministry. We're excited to join a church, follow some kind of calling, but then start to serve half-heartedly when things get difficult. Once again, I'll, I'll confess to you that there's been times whenever this is how I've started to act. You know, Redeemer is eight years old now. For me, it's more around nine because I, I, I got started a year before with prep work and getting ready before we actually got started. And over the course of these years, it hasn't been nothing but smooth sailing. You know, you guys like Lagan, you, you, you know you've been around here. And Eli, y'all have been around here a long time. We've faced all kinds of setbacks. We've faced all kinds of highs and lows and times where it feels like we're running, times where it feels like we're crawling. You know, heartbreaks and excitement. And there's been times in the midst of it all and in the down points where I'm t- tempted to just start coasting. Just start getting by. Because I want to be a part of the excitement, but not a part of the cost that comes with my calling to be the lead pastor of Redeemer. And so in those times, I've had to repent and remember that if I'm going to answer God's call, it's got to be in the ups and the downs. The same is true for us all. What this means for us, it means i got to keep going even whenever I start hacking in the microphone. <laughs> Uh, I apologize. I know that's so gross. It's like the last thing I want for you. Especially if you're listening to this podcast later. It's just the worst. Uh, what this means for us is this. Commit yourself to serving no matter what. No matter what, guys. Commit yourself to serving. There is joy, there is excitement, and there is fulfillment that comes whenever we answer the call. Answer the call to be a church member. Or answer the call to, uh, to, to go off on, on some other calling that God has for you. It could be a calling in your career that God has for you that you answer. It could be a calling in ministry that God has for you to go off and answer. It could be a calling for you, not just membership, but to serve on, on one of our teams. You know, once again, kids, just going to plug that. 
there's joy and fulfillment that comes when we answer the call, yet there's also sacrifice and difficulty. You've got to have, like I said before, that attitude of yes. That comes when it answers the call, that you're going to have an attitude of yes whenever it's fun and it's exciting, but then you're also going to still be saying yes whenever it's unrewarding or you feel like you're not getting recognized or it's difficult. Still answer the call. Serve no matter what. Don't start coasting. Don't start being half-hearted. Be the person who is eager to serve in God's kingdom no matter where that is. Wherever he's calling you, wherever is the need, say, I'm the guy. I'm the, I'm the gal. Be the kind of person who's going to tell this whole story, even whenever it's difficult. Wherever God is calling you to serve, whether it's a place in Redeemer, wherever it's a place outside of Redeemer, wherever God's calling you to serve in your homes, in your neighborhoods, in your jobs, be the person who's committed to the whole calling. Like Ahimaaz, the whole story, not just the easy parts, not just the fun parts. Serve whenever it's easy and fun, but also joyfully serve just as much whenever it's difficult and unrewarding. Commit yourself to serving no matter what. I think we also have another application, though, that we can make here, which is this. Surround yourself with friends who tell you the whole truth. Surround yourself with friends who tell you the whole truth. David received the news that he expected and wanted to hear from Ahimaaz. But he received the whole truth and what he needed to hear from someone completely unexpected, a no-name, somebody that, who, that wasn't even an Israelite. That's the person that he got the whole truth, the news that he needed to hear from. Likewise, we need to surround ourselves with, um, with people who will only tell us what we need to hear. And not just surround ourselves with people who will only tell us what we want to hear. It can be really easy to do that. We all know, we've all been around bosses who only want people near them who tell them what they want to hear. They're insecure. We've, we've been around maybe pastors or Christian leaders before who only surround themselves and allow those to be near them who tell them what they want to hear. They're insecure leaders. They can't handle hearing something they don't want to hear. Commit yourself, even if you aren't the boss, <clears throat> even if you aren't the, the, the lead pastor or the director over a ministry that you're serving in, to surround yourself with the people who tell you what you need, tell you what you need to hear. Sometimes it's hard news, but you know what? Whenever you surround yourself with the kind of people who tell you what you need to hear, they're also going to be the people who are going to tell you what you need whenever you're desperate, whenever you're on the edge of quitting, whenever you are whenever you're down, right? Whenever you're tempted to be in Ahimaaz and start coasting, they're going to tell you the good things you need to hear too. So I'm not saying surround yourself with someone who's just going to nag at you. <laughs> you don't need that either, all right? There's two types of toxic. There's the toxic person in a relationship that only nags and picks and criticizes, who only sees what they can poke at, right? But there's also the toxic person who will only puff up. That's a toxic too. Surround yourself with someone who will tell you what you need to hear, the good and the bad, right? The encouragement and the constructive criticisms. Moreover, commit yourself to be that friend who tells the whole truth as you try to surround yourself with friends who tell the whole truth. I believe that 
this is one of those things at the sound of, at the risk of sounding cliche that you know you got to like be the thing that you want to see in others. I really do believe that this is true in this area. Whenever you try to be that person who's that kind of friend, then you're going to start naturally surrounding yourself with people who are like that too. Because the ones who can't handle that, the, the relationship won't form, won't last. Be that friend who tells the whole truth, lovingly, encouraging, sent gently, whenever it's something hard to hear, as you try to get yourself friends like that. In Proverbs 27, 6, it says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Finally, how are we supposed to do all this? How are we going to continue serving where it's hard and difficult? How are we going to uh, have the power to trust God even whenever the outcome is not in line with what we desired? Here's where we find the power in order to do those things. In one of my all-time favorite verses, you guys know I reference it a lot, is in the beginning of Hebrews chapter 12, where the author of Hebrews says, let us run with endurance, it says, the race that lies before us. He's making a metaphor there of the calling that God has in your life, in your household, in your careers, in the kingdom, right? All those callings are a part of your kingdom calling. But all of this, he likens to a race. And there comes times in a race where it's difficult to continue, where you want to quit. My track coach in high school called it when the bear jumps on you. There's a point like in the 400 meter or in the 200 meter or the mile race where you're, you're coasting along and it's fun, right? Ministry can feel like that. Kingdom work can feel like that. You're going. It's awesome. But then all of a sudden, you know, you're running and your legs are getting tired. You want to quit. Your lungs are starting to burn. That's what we used to call it. The bear jumps on you. It's the point when you want to quit, but it's the point where you got to start going. You got to start pushing. In ministry, and your callings in the kingdom can be like that too. There's a point where the bear jumps on your back, and that's where endurance comes in. Let us run the race that lies before us with endurance. How? He says, because of Jesus, who ran the race that, lies, that was before him with, guess what? Endurance, it says. It, it uses the same word. It is connecting the endurance that Jesus had to our endurance. His endurance Flees, uh, 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 fuels ours. What was his endurance? It says, whenever he endured the cross, despising its shame for the joy that was set before him. Whenever it gets difficult to continue on and you want to quit, or you're wondering, I feel empty and I need a refilling, refilling of the energy, of the passion of the commitment to continue or to, or, or to tell the hard news or to continue to serve, where do we look to? We look to Jesus who endured on our behalf, a calling that was far more severe than any calling that God would have us uh, commit to, a calling that for Jesus meant curse and meant death rather than our callings, which, are, which promise joy and fulfillment. Because Jesus endured that, the cross on our behalf, in our place, now when we look to him, we not only receive forgiveness for our sins, but empowerment through the Holy Spirit to commit to whatever calling God has before us so that we are not half-hearted servants in his kingdom, but that we are full-hearted 
full of the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for Jesus Christ. I thank you for our King who laid down his life for us. I thank you for the, uh, the ultimate runner that we got to look at who ran his race with endurance. Father, as the author of Hebrews tells us, help us to fix our eyes on him. Whenever we get tired, whenever the bear jumps on our back in the callings that we have, whenever we want to start cutting corners at work, whenever we want to start neglecting our responsibilities at home, whenever we want to start avoiding the needs that we see in the kingdom around us, Lord, let us fix our eyes on him and commit and see that the greatest joy and that the deepest fulfillment comes when we answer your call and not when we follow our own preferences. Even whenever we have the difficult callings as Imaz wanted to have for himself, whenever we obey those and whenever we align our will with yours and we submit to you in obedience, that there's greater joy in the cost of obedience to you than there is in following our own way. Father, make us obedient, faithful, steadfast servants, fully committed to your kingdom in whatever calling you have for us. Let our answer to all of your invitations be yes. We pray this in the name of our King, Jesus Christ. Amen.